You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are thrilled that you're here with us at Calvary. And so let me start with something that's tough for all of us, but we'll just, we can be friends here. Some of us have known each other for years, others of us for the last 30, 40 seconds now. And, uh, but if by show of hands, if possible, can you tell me this, does anybody have a food that is an absolute kryptonite to you? Doesn't matter. I mean, it's like you can, you give in no matter what. Anybody have something like that? Okay. A lot of us. If you look around, the people that aren't raising their hands, those are all the liars in the crowd. And uh, now, <laughs> I, I'll tell you this. I, I have a food like that. Let me show you a picture of it. Um, this is absolute kryptonite. Now, by the way, regular Oreos, nothing. It doesn't impact me at all. The double stuff, we got a different kind of problem. And if they're golden double stuff, double problem. And so... Um, I can't even keep them in my house because I, do, I cannot say no. And, um, and I figured out this was a problem about 20 years ago. Because here's the thing that happens is that <clears throat> uh, I was speaking at a church in Central Florida years and years ago. This is before we even had kids. I think it was before we even started Calvary. But they had heard that I was a big fan of double stuffed Oreos. And so when I got there, I walked up, they introduced me, I walked up to the podium, and they had a package for me waiting. I opened up the package, it was two packages of double stuffed Oreos, and I was like, wow, Spirit of God is in this place. And, uh, and, so, and so, anyway, uh, I teach there, and then I drive home with my wife, and my wife has this thing that she does, where she will take a storage, one of those little clear storage bins, and she will line the bottom with bread and then she'll put the Oreos in and then put bread on the top, close it up overnight. And when you open those up the next morning, the bread will be hard and the Oreos will be soft. And you're like, what kind of magic is this? Who knows? But it is amazing. If you learn nothing else today, which we hope you will, but if you learn nothing else, you have picked up an important skill that will serve you for the rest of your life. So the next morning I wake up. So that was Sunday. I wake up Monday morning and I'm very excited. I, first thing, I go to the kitchen. I open up the package ever so quietly. And I start popping those Oreos like you would put quarters into a vending machine. And so, I mean, it's like Pez. And so uh, my, my wife comes over. She sees that this two packages of Oreos in this bin, they're starting to deplete. And she's like, Bob, uh, you need to slow down. And I'm like, Carrie, it wasn't even me. Like, guests have been here, people have been, and she's like, Bob, no one has been in this house. And I'm like, why do you start messing things up with your facts? And, uh, and so anyway, an hour later, I take a break. About an hour later, I come back into the kitchen, and I am trying as discreetly as I can to grab as many Oreos as possible. So I'm just like shoving as many in my mouth as I can because, anyway, I have problems. And so I'm doing that. And then, um, so I got a handful of Oreos in my hand and I'm just trying to fit as many as I can in my mouth. And then I stop. So let me pause for a second. You ever, you ever, uh, you ever just feel like someone's watching you? Well, I had that sensation 
and I turn ever so slowly. But more, let me do it. This is exactly what it looked like. And my wife is standing there with this look on her face. Like, I had so many options. And I had to marry a moron like you. And, uh, and, 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 I, and so, and I, with pieces of Oreos flying out of my mouth, I said, don't judge me. <laughs> now, here, here's the thing, right? Is that, I mean, we hear that. We hear that all the time. Uh, people say that. People who aren't even Christians will say, hey, man, don't judge me. Hey, you know, didn't Jesus say something about not judging? As if that means that anything that anybody does at any given time in any given way is okay because Jesus just so maybe happened to have said at one point in time, don't judge me. So if we can really get to the bottom of the mystery, what did Jesus actually say? Let's take a look at it. In Matthew chapter 7, it says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, people have no idea what Jesus means when he says that. You will by the end of this message. But what it happens is, is that, you know, people love quoting this. They're like, did Jesus say no judge? As if that is just like some kind of get out of jail free card for anything that you want to do at any given time. But you know, Jesus says other things about judging. So let me give you another example. This is in John chapter seven. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So if you're gonna judge, do it the right way. So once again, if Jesus is saying don't judge in one place and he's saying yes to judge in another, there could be a deeper conversation that needs to take place. And here's why. is because Jesus, if you notice this, he had a way of accepting people and yet not accepting every decision that that person makes. Jesus had a way of loving people without loving every single action that they would make. In fact, even the enemies of Jesus understood that fact, that you could um, love a person without saying, hey, I approve of every single thing that you've ever done in your life. And one of the reasons why we misunderstand Jesus' words is because we have to understand that the Greek language in which the New Testament was written in is a far more robust language than English. Our common English vernacular, that is the English words that are being used in our country, is about one million words. Now, you didn't think you knew that many words, but it's about one million words. Really common English vernacular is about 50,000 words, but one million words is kind of the stretch of what we use in the English language. The Greek language that the New Testament was written in, 32 million words. It was a far more robust language. That's why when it talks about love, it's way more precise in talking about love based on loving a thing or loving a person or loving your children. And, and, and when it comes to the word judge, there's several different words that it uses for the idea of judging as opposed to in English, just our one. So when he says, Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, judge not that you not be judged, the word that he uses is this Greek word, krino, K-R-I-N-O. And here's what that word means. It means to condemn. It's to judge someone to condemnation. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, stop condemning people. Why? Because when you condemn people, that same measure is going to be used towards you. And listen, that's a problem everybody has, right? Like, have you noticed that that's how it works? Like, we are very gracious with ourselves, but we are way tougher on other people. 
So we do something and we're like, well, you got to understand, I had good intentions. Somebody else does it and it's like, judgment, right? It's kind of a weird way that we are. And uh, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But here's the problem. In John chapter 7, when Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment, the word is a different word. It's this word, diakrino, D-I-A-K-R-I-N-O. And diakrino means to judge for identification. And that is, it is possible to look at something and decide if something is healthy or unhealthy, godly or ungodly, right or wrong. Now, here's why I bring all of this up is because we started a series a few weeks ago here at Calvary called A Beautiful Mess. And we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that was uh, there in the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece. If you kind of are a good geography person, you understand where that is. Now, and so 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to this church that he planted. He spent two and a half years planting the church, then he left, and then he gets a letter in the mail from a woman by the name of Chloe because her and her family attend the church at Corinth, and she says, Paul, the church that you planted is totally out of control. And by the way, she was right. This church had all kinds of problems. They were a church that was divided. They were a church that had infighting. They were a church that people were getting drunk during communion. People! Like everybody, that, that, Anyway, p- the people were suing each other in the church. Like it was a total mess. And so Paul writes to them and tells them that a divided world needs a united church. And the way that we have a united church is by having the mind of Christ. And if you've been with us, we've been talking about what that is. That the mind of Christ is when I think about things the way Jesus thinks about things. Knowing what God wants us to do and speaking in a way that is consistent with the character and nature of God. And so when we've been studying this message, the last few messages that we gave, the end of chapter 3 ends, kind of looking at this book from big picture, it ends the introduction of the book, where Paul really addresses the division that's happening in the church. Now, Paul is going to deal with what's going on in the church, and these three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are going to deal with these, uh, all of the problems that are going on in the church. Now, here's why that's important for us is because all of us have problems that need to get dealt with. We have problems that come up in church. We have problems that come up in our lives. We have problems that come up in our careers. We have problems that come up just in, in the world around us. And we have to be able to use wisdom and discernment to judge what's right or wrong and make decisions that honor God in the world in which we live. And so the theme of the next three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, is that Paul is going to deal with some really heavy topics that we're going to get into. But first, Paul has to take a step back and explain what kind of people we need to be to navigate tough topics, to navigate difficult situations. And once again, this is big for all of us because, listen, every single one of us have things that we need to deal with, but we hesitate to deal with them. And here's why. Because we actually don't know how to deal with them. And this message and the next two are really going to help us. They're going to help us to navigate tough moments. They're going to help us to navigate tough topics that come up in our lives. And so we're going to start in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1. And here's what we read. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. 
until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels or the motives of the hearts, and then each one's praise will come from God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about when it comes to judgment, but here's the first one. The first one is this, is that I need to slow down in my judgment. Now, understand what's happening here contextually in this church. This church was very immature, but they were under the illusion that they were spiritual giants. And by the way, isn't that how it always goes? Immature people can never discern that they're the immature ones, but what they do is they just justify themselves and vilify everyone else. And so what Paul does is he opens by saying that here's what mature people are. They are servants and they're stewards. What does that mean? The word servant is an interesting one because in the original language, the original Greek language, the word servant isn't what we would think of, which is just maybe someone who's helping out or a worker. It literally means this, under rower. And you can write that down in your notes. An under rower is a person below deck who rowed a warship. And if you've seen drawings or sketches of this in the past where there'd be these giant Greek vessels where they had these openings and then there'd be all of these oars that were outside and there'd be people that were rowing, that's what an under rower was. There would be dozens and dozens of these people. The captain would be down below and he would be beating a drum and the rowers would all row to the captain's beat so that you could get from where you are to where you ultimately needed to be. And Paul is saying this, and the, once again, what was the key to a, an under rower was obedience, was rowing to the beat of the captain. And what he's saying is, is that obedience to Jesus, our captain, is the characteristic that should mark our lives. But he says that we're servants, but then he says that we're stewards. A steward is not an under rower. Instead, a steward is an overseer. An overseer is someone who would oversee the affairs in someone else's house. To give you an idea, if you've ever seen a Batman movie, that Alfred was the steward of Wayne Manor. Alfred doesn't own any of it, but he's entrusted for caring for it according to the desires of Bruce Wayne or whoever it is that is the patriarch in in that family at the time. Paul is saying that the guiding characteristic of a steward is that he be found faithful. Now here's the problem, is that this church was saying all kinds of critical things about Paul, while at the same time, they were totally out of control. They were sinning in ways that were making people who weren't Christians blush. And so what Paul says, and this is so wise, he says this, judge nothing before it's time. Why is that? He's saying, hey man, slow down because not everything is as it seems. One of the things that I've learned as I've gotten a little bit older, I turned 31 just recently, You know, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Not that long ago, it was the 16th anniversary of turning 31. Um, so, <laughs> but listen, one of the things that I th- I'm learning as I've gotten a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser is that rarely do things appear as they seem at first glance. Maybe you've learned this to be true as well. But given time, you know what you find? is that the true nature of things come out because we don't always have all of the information. But even more than information, people's true character is always revealed over time. There's an old saying that says this, that patience is the weapon that forces deception to reveal itself. Patience is the weapon that forces deception to reveal itself. Things are always revealed over time. And here's the great thing. If you make a decision to be patient, 
and see and not judge anything before it's time. You know what's going to happen? People are going to think you're as wise as Solomon because you just, and really what you're doing is you're allowing patience to do its work. Solomon would say it this way in, in Proverbs chapter 17, even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. That means you could be a complete idiot. But if you keep your mouth shut, people are like, this guy is a genius. Why? Because you're doing the thing that wise people do. And that's the thing that happens is there's really something amazing that happens when you wait for things to play out. Because if we are hasty, we always end up with egg on our face. Now, let me tell you how I experienced this this week with my 11-year-old son, Xander is I picked him up at lunchtime uh, one day this week and took him back to the office and he finished his schoolwork here and then hung out with me. And, but when we walked outside of my house, there was a guy in my neighborhood who was painting and he walks up to me and asks me a question. And so I start talking with him in, fr- in, in, in front of my driveway. And so I have m- kind of my back to my son who's standing next to the car and I have my back to my car. And we're talking and uh, we're having this conversation and my son says, uh, Dad, can you help? And I'm like, yeah, just a minute, buddy. And I keep talking. And then he says, dad, uh, can you take a look at this? And I'm like, buddy, one minute and then I'll help you out. And then he says, "Uh, dad, a bird just pooped all over your car. Okay, now I'm interested. So I turn around. And so I kind of turn around this way to look at my car. And I want you to understand what's happened. I want you to imagine you're standing on top of a car and you open a can of white paint. And you just spill this gallon of paint all over the side of the car. I don't know what these birds were eating but they need to lay off the carbs because this was a nasty situation. And I, I see, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm like, all right, buddy, we're going we're gonna to deal with that in a minute. And, um, and he says, uh, dad, um, you know, uh, I, I need some help. And, and I'm like, buddy, give me a minute. And, and he's like, dad, you don't understand. Now I'm getting frustrated because we teach our kids, like when adults are talking, You just wait for a moment and say, excuse me, mom, excuse me, dad. And so now he's like done this three or four times. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? And 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 he's like, dad, you don't understand. And as I go to turn around to say like, dude, relax. He says, the bird bird poop hit the car and then splashed on me. (laughs) I turn around. This poor kid has been standing there with bird poop all over his neck. And his dad wouldn't turn around to look at him because... And, and, and this kid is like, first of all, if that happened to me, I would be screaming. And this kid is like, dad, uh, please, could you help me? And I'm like, you know, kid, haven't we taught you better? And no, because this is what happens. I felt so horrible that I had done this. And I'm like, dude, I am so sorry. I, what can I do? Anyway, we got him cleaned up. And I'm like, hey, man, can I buy you a Coke? And uh, I know you're not allowed to drink soda on weekdays, but like we, we can make an exception. And uh, what, 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 what do you want? I mean, do, 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 you, do you want like an Xbox or something? I'm like, my, like I, I feel so terrible. And once again, the point is this. Sometimes we think we know what's up, but you haven't turned around yet. And that's the thing that happens is that, listen, because sometimes only one part of the story has been painted. And that's why Paul says here in verse four, he says, God will reveal the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of people's hearts. Listen, if you're quick to judge, you're gonna end up with egg on your face or maybe like my son, something worse. 
Um, and by the way, when we were driving away, I, I told my son we were driving back to church here, and I'm like, you know, some people believe that when a bird poops on you, it's good luck. <laughs> and he's like, huh, that's cool. Do you believe that? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Uh, and I'm like, do you feel lucky? And he's like, well, no. But you didn't answer the question, do you believe that? And I'm like, I believe the person standing next to the guy who got pooped on is the lucky one. And he says, uh, yeah, that's about right. So, all right, so we've got to slow down. What does he say next? Look at verse 6. He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another, of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we might reign with you. For I think that God displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. And we are poorly clothed, beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat or encourage. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. If you pause there and give me your attention. The second thing when it comes to judgment is I need to accept reality in my judgment. There's a lot here where Paul explains his role and he gets a little sarcastic, which goes to show you sometimes sarcasm is biblical. So there's something. Um, but he says that he has spoken figuratively about him and Apollos. What does that mean? He's saying this. He's saying, when I talked about Apollos and I as a master builder, when I talked about Apollos and I as uh, under rowers, when I talked about Apollos and I as stewards, he's speaking figuratively so they understand what the role of a leader is. But the reason he gives this, and then he says this, so that you do not go beyond what is written. And that is, Listen, when you're trying to figure things out, sometimes we're running ahead of the judgments that God is going to make, the differentiations between what is right and what is wrong, what is blessed and what isn't. Because sometimes we're just kind of going with what we see or what we think or culturally what might be right. And Paul then, that's why he gets sarcastic to prove the point that sometimes things are not always as this seems. And what he does is that he contrasts how they were living in relative ease while Paul and the other apostles were struggling, being persecuted, and enduring all kinds of challenges. And he's like, listen, you guys are full. You guys are rich. You guys are like a king with how you're reigning. Societally, a reigning king is as high as you could get. And then he contrasts that with the apostles saying, you guys are like men who are condemned to death which is the lowest that you could get societally. And he says that we've been made a spectacle. Now, that being a spectacle isn't just like we've been um, showcased for everyone to see. That's actually something culturally that was understood. When a reigning king returned to his hometown, uh, after he had victory in some kind of battle, he would come back to the town. People would line the streets. The king would go first. All of the Men who were there in the battle with him would go after them. And then everybody else would go. And at the very end were the prisoners of war who were going to be publicly executed. Those were called 
the spectacles. So from the king at the very front, this is the picture that he's giving. You guys think that you're the kings at the very front and that we are the spectacle, the men condemned to death at the very end. And it's the picture of how they viewed themselves versus the apostle Paul and the other apostles. Because here's the thing that happens sometimes is that we look on and we're like, well, man, those guys seem like they're blessed and these apostles seem like they're really struggling. So because things seem to be going well, they must be the ones that have the blessing of God. And these apostles, they're struggling, so they must not be blessed. And what we know is when we don't go beyond what is written, which is the thing that Paul is saying, don't go beyond what's written. You don't know what's going to happen until we get to the end. And see, these people had every opportunity to experience the blessing of God personally, but what they decided to is that they were just living in this crazy way. And because they weren't being persecuted, because the persecution in Corinth was not like it was in other parts of the Roman Empire, because there were so many cultures in the city of Corinth. And once again, sometimes we just don't know the whole story. It might look good from where we stand, but we don't have the right perspective. Now, let me explain that. Years ago, before we had kids, I flew to Boston to visit my family, and I took my wife to Fenway Park. I grew up in Boston, so I'm a huge Red Sox fan. So we went to Fenway Park to see the Red Sox. The game was sold out, as most Red Sox games are. But I talked to a guy that was selling some tickets, and I got two tickets behind home plate for 10 bucks a piece. Great deal. Then I got into the stadium, and I realized why they were 10 bucks. Because one of them was, be- well, let me show you what one was like. So, now you got to understand something. These, these support, now if you look, there are these support poles all over Fenway Park. You got to understand, Fenway Park was built in 1912. It opened the week that the Titanic sank. That's how old Fenway Park is. And so, there are a whole bunch of seats that are just like this. Now, that's what... So I have a seat and my wife has a seat and I'm like, what is the loving thing to do to, uh, for, for my wife? And so as a loving husband, what I did was I said, look, Carrie, you sit in the bad seat and I'm going to tell you what happens. I'll give you the play by play. So this is my wife's view. That's what she saw for pretty much the whole game, unless somebody was on third and then she saw, Hey, look, somebody's there. And so now Now you look on and you're like, man, I see what's going on. That's your perspective. Oh, these people are blessed and these people are not. Nah, that's your perspective. Once again, we have the obstructed seat. And yet sometimes we think that we have perfect clarity with what is happening. Listen, our perspective is so limited. And sometimes we make decisions thinking that we've got a view on this. I've got a handle on this better than God does. Listen, Paul says this, don't go beyond what's written. Don't go beyond, you're making determinations as to who's in and who's out and what's this and what's that. No, 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 you gotta slow down because sometimes we don't have all the facts. You ever have that moment where someone you know or someone in your neighborhood, and there is a phenomenon that, and I don't know if it's true, it's just one that I've observed, that when one person in a neighborhood gets a new car, it sets off this infection Uh, it's true. It just sets off like this infection that everybody starts getting that. I mean, it's a great moment for a coronavirus joke, right? I was going to make a coronavirus joke, but 99.7 of you wouldn't get it. Um, so, so, (laughs) okay. 
Uh, I've said that privately, but I've not said that publicly. There's somebody at home who's toasting a bagel, listening to this, being like, I can't believe you said that. You're at home. So relax. Um, So anyway, well, they were at home. They just hung up now. This is like, done. So anyway, um, moving on. But you ever have, but anyway, so there's this, anyway, there's this thing that I see. It's, It's like this, somebody gets a new car in your neighborhood, and then all these other people start feeling like, well, if that guy got a new car, I can't stand that guy. And he got a new car. I deserve to have a new car. And then you start seeing like new cars pop up all over your street. And what happens is, is that somebody gets a new car and you start having this conversation. Like, I can't believe that they got a new car and I'm struggling just to make it. They're driving around in a 2021. They've got the new car smell and my car still has a cassette player. And you're thinking, like, I don't even understand. It's not, I'm telling you, like, I'm generous and I'm tithing and I'm not living in luxury. These guys, I mean, they, they have one of those cars that, like, they don't even have to turn on the wipers. It, ha- it senses. It's got, like, the Obi-Wan Kenobi feature. It just kind of senses when there's a disturbance and it clears it, right? And so what happens is this. And, but here's what you don't know. And you're like, man, that guy, I see him. He's driving down the, driving through our neighborhood and he's got that smile on his face. But you know, if you were to examine that smile a little bit more, you know what you'd find? It's not a smile of joy. It's a nervous smile. It's more of a, what did I get myself into? I've got a car payment the size of a mortgage. And I don't know how I'm going to keep this shell game going to to make it look. Because sometimes we don't know what's happening. And when we get outside of the obstructed view, When you let time not judge things before their time and not go beyond what's written, there's something amazing that's happening and how it transforms our perspective. Now, there's this Old Testament picture that we get in the Psalms. In Psalm 73, it's it's a great Psalm to read, but let me give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of it. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is struggling with what we struggle with sometimes, that we see how someone looks blessed. How is it that things seem to be going well and I'm not doing as well. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm struggling with that. So let me, let me give you, Psalm 73 starts off like this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. So far, so good. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone because I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Now, the verses after that, he starts listing the things that they do. They do this, they do that, I do this, I do that. I'm struggling, but they see, everything seems to be going well. And then it all starts with this. Like from my perspective, this is what he looks like. And then he has this moment where God reveals something to him in verse 16. And then he says this. He says, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, and, but what a difficult task it is. Pause. It goes black so you can really soak it in. And then it says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. You see, when you have the right perspective, you can judge. And by the way, the word that Paul talks about here is a third Greek word for judge. The Greek word is not krino, condemn. It's not diakrino, which is to identify. It's the word anakrino, which is this. It means to examine, to identify, and to discern. And see, when I anacrino, when I judge correctly, when I'm like, hey, I think that's right, I think that's wrong, but I'm going to wait. 
to see how things play out, you are going to find out that God was right all along and that we were wise to follow him. Well, look what he says in verse 14. So we're going to bring it to a close. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up or arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know, not with the word of those who are puffed up, but with the power, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? or in love and a spirit of gentleness. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing. And that is I need to examine myself in my judgment. I love how this passage reflects the heart of the Apostle Paul as not just a teacher, but as a father to them. He tells them, hey, listen, you've got a lot of teachers, but you don't have many fathers. Because, listen, there's, he says, there might be 10,000 people who will teach you. And guess what? That has never been more true than it is today, right? There's like millions of sermons online that you can watch and lots of teachers who are going to tell you what you want to hear, tell you that everything's fine. And let me tell you something, just as an aside, I really believe the biggest problem that we're experiencing in the church, and I mean capital C, the church as a whole uh, on, the, and on the globe, is it's bad teaching that's ruining Christians. I really believe that. They're being told that if you follow Jesus, listen, nothing bad is going to happen to you. You just follow Jesus. You'll always get the front spot at Publix. You'll always get the last of whatever you want. Uh, you'll, you'll, and you'll never have to be patient. You just think positive thoughts. So here's a positive thought. I am positive that's not true. All right? Because bad things do happen to Christians. When you come to know Jesus, it's not this get out of jail free card where everything is going to be okay all the time, no matter what. You know why? And here's how you can know that that's true. Look at Jesus. The disciples, you know, that kind of teaching never took off in the first century because the disciples, 11 of the 12 apostles, were martyred. The apostle John is the only one that wasn't, and they tried to kill him more than once. He just wouldn't, you know, he was stubborn in that way that he wouldn't die. And so, but what happens is, is like, like on Friday, we celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was the best man they had ever known, and he was crucified. So this idea that if I become a Christian, everything is going to be great. No, no, no. They, they, under, they understood that, that it's like, you know, and, and listen, no amount of positive vibes only is going to change that fact. And that's the difference, my friends, between a teacher and a father. Teachers might tell you what you want to hear, but fathers are going to tell you what you need to hear. And you know what a father's most powerful message is? Is what Paul says in verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Your kids are going to do what you do way more than they're going to do what you say. Your kids are watching you, and their decisions are going to largely be made up of what you did or did not do, what you taught them or what you failed to teach them, and what you modeled for them. I had this experience a couple of months ago with my kids. So Friday is my day off, and one of the things that we do as a family is we go out to lunch on Friday. That's kind of our thing. And so one Friday, 
we decided to go to lunch uh, at this Italian place. We don't typically go, we love Italian food. We typically don't go to eat Italian because the Italians don't understand that there are other things besides carbs. They don't really, they don't really get that. But anyway, so we get to this Italian place and, um, and even though we make Italian food at home, I guess, I don't know, I guess we had never really taken our kids to an Italian restaurant. And so my son's like, hey, what should I order? And I'm like, listen, if I were you, you should get the lasagna. The lasagna here is awesome. So he does. I get something different, but he gets the lasagna. And so my wife and I are talking, and then I'm helping my, my younger daughter with her food. And when Xander, he stops in a little bit, and he's like, dude, I'm, I'm stuffed. I'm full. Like, I ate half. I cannot eat anymore. I'm done. And I look over, and Xander has eaten the lasagna, but he started from the top and started eating the layering down. And I'm like... Like, I want you to imagine, like, how, how someone would eat pancakes, like, one pancake at a time. He was eating one layer at a time. And I'm like, dude, what is this? And he's like, what? I'm full. I ate half the lasagna. And I'm like, that's, you don't, you don't eat a sandwich like that. Like, one bread, the middle, and and he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, haven't you ever eaten lasagna before? And he's like, no, it was the first time. And I was like, oh. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I failed to teach you. Because I, I don't know if you know this. If you're a parent, you know this. Someday, if you're not a parent, you will be. Let me just give you a little tip. You have to teach your kids everything. Every, all the basics. All the basics. And so I remember the first time, like, I was drinking a Coke one time, and I, I was drinking it, and my son, he was like 18 months old, and he was like, you have some? And he didn't talk at the time, but he's like, Ugh, which is what boys do, like, they just grunt, and like, Ugh, okay, and like, all right, Chewbacca, have whatever you want. And, uh, and so, anyway, so he goes to take a drink, but he didn't, he didn't know, like, you have to line up the opening with your mouth, like, I thought that was something that was intuitive to humans. It's not. You have to teach people this. So he goes back. It kind of like, sh- he's got this sh- shot of Coke in his eyes. Ah! And I'm like, you got to line it up. And so he didn't know that. So that night, so that night, he says, hey, can I eat the rest of my lasagna? And I'm like, yes. And let's have a little training session. So I take a certain percentage of the lasagna. And I'm like, see, this is how you eat it. Let me show you a few more bites. Wow, this is really good. Let me show you a few more. Just, so you kind of get this? And he's like, I get it. Like, please walk away now. And, um, and so, but that's how you do it. These are always good teaching moments for kids. Like Halloween. Um, I, you know, my kids get candy. It's a great night to teach your kids about tithing. And I'm like, I'm going to teach you guys about tithing. I'll be playing the role of God. I'll take the first 10%. Then what I like to do is come back and teach them about taxes and take the next 30%. And so, <laughs> welcome to America. And so anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes, Pastor Rob, I feel like you dislike the government. Really? Took you that long to figure it out. <laughs> what party are you with? The anarchist one. Anyway, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a little loose today. I'm sorry. I'm just... If you enjoy this, 1 p.m. is the place to be. 
if that's uh, so uh, after this. So now, but here's, so let me, let me close with this. Let me close with this one thought. Because um, Paul says, imitate me, right? So think about this. What would this church be like if everyone was like you? See, Paul is saying, listen, here, this is his hope. He's like, listen, why don't you Im- imitate me? Here would be a good thing for the church at Corinth if everybody was a little more like Paul. What would this church be like if everybody was like you? Would the whole church be serving? Would everybody be really excited to invite their friends to hear the gospel so that they'd be transformed? Would this whole church be generous? Would we be a church that we are here because we are excited to, and ready to learn? Would we be a people that are just so uh, committed to growing in our faith and trusting God more? Listen, these are questions to ask ourselves. Because what we usually do, if we're being honest, is we have a tendency to be very hard on others and very lenient on ourselves. We want to have a lot of grace for us and be a little bit more judgmental to the people around us. You see, what would happen if we decided that we were going to be very gracious to the people around us and then we decided to keep ourselves more accountable to what God has called us to do? I'll tell you what would happen. You'd be the kind of person like the Apostle Paul who was able to say, imitate me. That is, follow my example. And by the way, that isn't a one-time thing. When we get to chapter 11, you know what he's going to say? He's going to kick off chapter 11 with these words, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Because the reality is, Paul knew this, we need to know this. To other people, we are the representative of Calvary. We are the representative of Christianity, and we are the representative of who Jesus is. That's why people typically don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with Christians. And that's why we need to be people of grace, gracious with others who don't know Jesus, and maybe keeping ourselves a little bit more accountable. Why? Because we know that the world around us is watching. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that strong encouragement to be more like you to be the kind of people who are worth following. Lord, that's our hope, is that we wouldn't be known as a people who are judgmental, but instead a people who can discern what's right and what's wrong, that we might live the life that you're calling us to live, which we know is the best possible way to live. And so we thank you for that, and that you would do your good work in us, and we pray it in Jesus' good name, and everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.